Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. They had it all. God had revealed himself to them first out of all the people in the entire world. Remember the divine speech from the top of Mount Sinai in 70 languages it could be heard. God showed him his great fire. They heard his words from the midst of the fire and God split his voice into 70. All the nations could hear and only Israel before they even heard the law they consented to it. All that the Lord has said we will do. Paul is reminding them of the scriptures. And this would only be the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they had. The patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Isaiah, David, Melchizedek. Everything now is going to center around the Eucharistic Christ because Christ is gone. He's ascended back to the Father. Paul says to the Corinthians, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when it had been given thanks, he took it, he broke it. He said, this is is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In this old icon, you see Melchizedek right in the center with the bread and wine. The same way he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So all the patriarchs belong to Israel. Paul is making all the connections in his mind. Paul is revealing Christ in the Old Testaments, the hidden Christ, the hidden Messiah. After Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, Paul had scales over his eyes. But when Paul was baptized by Ananias, and I always chuckle, it's on the street called Straight. Paul straightens out his life. He's baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit by Ananias and scales literally fall from his eyes. And Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit and infused with all the Spirit's gifts, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. And Paul's conversion afterwards, he pours over the Old Testament scriptures with this new Holy Spirit understanding and the insights of the risen Christ as the true anointed one that God had promised. And scales fall from his eyes. The veil has been lifted from his face and he understands. He sees all the hiddenness of the Old Testament. And Paul says today, it's not as though the word of God, and he's talking about the Old Testament, it's not as though the word of God had failed. God told us about Jesus. It was all there all along. It was hidden. And now he sees it with the Holy Spirit eyes. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants. But through Isaac, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Now, Abraham and Sarah, we studied last year in Genesis, not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, but through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Paul understands the promised blessing of redemption from the fall, from the cursed earth will come through Isaac, the promise. Not everyone who is being saved through baptism was in the direct genetic line of Abraham, but they're in the line of the promise. Salvation was coming through a promise from God, not through heredity. In Romans 9, Paul says this means that it is not the children of the flesh 
who are children of God, but the children of promise are reckoned as his descendants. For this is what the promise said about this time. I will return and Sarah will have a son. I love this icon, what Sarah is holding the scripture, the scroll that Sarah said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. It's a supernatural conception. It's a supernatural pregnancy. It's a supernatural promise that God is fulfilling. And we see at the Oaks of Mamre, the son is promised to Abraham and Sarah. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes. He looked and behold, three men stood in front of him, the Lord. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them. And he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant by. And Abraham hastened into the tent of Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal and knead it into bread. Three measures of dough from Sarah's tent. They, and it's plural, they, the Trinity, the three men, the Lord, they said, where's your wife, Sarah? And Abraham said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you in the spring and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's the son of promise. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind and Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of woman. Sarah is done with menopause. Sarah laughs to herself and says, after I've grown old and my husband's old, and now I shall have this pleasure. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you in the spring and Sarah shall have a son. This is the son of promise. This is Isaac. Sarah denied saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. The fear and awesomeness of the Lord came over her. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now this time, Sarah has heard the Lord with her own ears. This isn't just Abraham telling her about a prayer time. You know, Abraham's not just making something up about his incredible prayer times. Sarah heard the Lord with her own ears. And Paul uses this analogy to the Galatians at chapter four. Tell me, who you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave, the other by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, the son of the free woman through promise. So flesh and spirit, we had that battle last week. Well, Paul is saying that the slave woman, Hagar, you know her, had a son, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman was by the flesh. But the free woman, Sarah, and the son of the free woman, Isaac, were born by the Spirit, by a promise from God the Trinity. I promise to send my Spirit to uncurse the clay earth and live inside of you. That same Holy Spirit. Now, this is an analogy. These two women are covenants, Paul says. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, she is our mother, Sarah. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one that does not bear. Break forth and shout, thou who art in travail. For the desolate hath more children than she who hath a husband. Now we, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise, says Paul in Galatians 4. At that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, remember he used to taunt Isaac, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. 
But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brethren, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the freeborn woman. Ishmael was Abram's first son, born of the flesh through a slave woman from Egypt named Hagar. It is undeniable that Ishmael was the firstborn son of Abraham. It was Abraham's seed that impregnated the Egyptian slave Hagar at Sarah's suggestion. But the inheritance of God's promise for redemption was not coming through that genetic bloodline of Hagar and Ishmael. God's election was Sarah and Isaac, the son of promise. In Genesis 17 of Sarah, God said to Abraham, your wife Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you another son by her and I will bless her. So she shall be the mother of nations, kings and peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said, said to God, oh, 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 that Ishmael might just live in your sight. Here's Ishmael. He's 13. We're doing fine. I got a son. Could it just be through him? Both women have the seed of Abraham. Both women will have descendants of Abraham, but only one woman will have the child of promise, the election of God by the clay pot of Sarah and her womb, that one woman, that old barren womb, Sarah. And the promise is through her son, her supernaturally conceived son of promise named Isaac. So old Sarah, wife of Abraham, should have never conceived. And young Mary, also a daughter of Abraham, should have never conceived. She's a virgin. She's old and barren. Both women, though, are connected to Abraham, and they both carry a supernatural son of promise, Isaac and the new Isaac, a typology again for Jesus Christ, the anti-type always being greater than the type. Jesus is a new Isaac, the son of promise, God's ultimate promise. God's promise came true. Ishmael became a great nation as God said he would. This exile of Hagar and Ishmael resulted in Hagar and Abraham's son Ishmael fathering a great nation from whom which Muhammad will, would descend. Both sons are direct descendants of Abraham's seed, but only one son is the son of promise for all fallen humanity. Look at the mother. One is free and one is a slave. God's promise comes through Sarah and God's promise comes through Isaac. They are the elected ones as Paul is telling us today. Romans 9. But if it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, but though I, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are reckoned as descendants. For this is what the promise said about this time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. The son of promise was not Ishmael which means God will hear. St. Paul would call Ishmael a son of the flesh, of the slave woman. But the son of promise, which means laughter, joy, will be Isaac. Look at Isaac in that painting with the lamb, the lamb of God. That's a typology. Isaac, little Isaac, son of promise, awaiting the lamb of God, God's ultimate blessing and promise. Then in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son. We know he has more than one son, but your only son of promise, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Now, Isaiah also tells us, just reinforces, to look to Abraham, your father, who bore Sarah, 
your son. It is that child of promise. Abraham and Sarah, remember they're nomads. They own no land. A nomad is a member of a community without a fixed habitation. They move, regularly move from one place to another. They live in tents. And I just reflecting on this, that Sarah died when she was 127 years old. She's the only woman in the entire Bible that were given how many years she lived. And remember, Abram wanted to bury her and he had to buy land. He's a nomad. He has to buy his first land in the promised land to bury his wife. He pays 400 shekels of silver for that land. And uh, he says, I'm a stranger. I'm a sojourner among you. I have to buy a place to bury my dead, my wife, Sarah. Now, this place is still there to this day, the caves at Machpelah, and it's the second holiest place in the world for the Jews to visit next to the Temple Mount. And Abraham and Sarah are buried there, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah. But according to the Midrash, the patriarchs were buried in that cave because the cave was thought to be the threshold to the Garden of Eden. The patriarchs are said to not be dead, but sleeping there. And they rise to beg mercy for their children throughout the generations. And according to the Zohar, this tomb is the gateway through which the souls enter into the Garden of Eden or heaven. So it's in Hebron in the West Bank today. Herod built a big edifice over, over it, that the cave at Machpelah. And that's where Sarah's tomb is. And many Jews love to go there to this day and make supplication for their marriages at Sarah's grave, her tomb is in the underneath in the cave. This is over it. And childless women often come there to pray for a baby because Sarah was so advanced in age and had Isaac, the son of promise. And did you ever wonder about Sarah's tent or these women of the old, the matriarchs? We hear a lot about the patriarchs, but Sarah's the first matriarch that we really get to know. And she had, as a nomadic mother and woman, she kept a tent. And just to reflect a little bit on the life of Sarah, there are some beautiful Jewish Midrash teachings concerning her life. Sarah is often depicted, and Paul calls her a Jerusalem. And Sarah's tent is a precursor or a typology for the upcoming tent of the meeting or which was the, the tent that housed the Ark of the Covenant for Moses. She's also a precursor, a foreshadowing of the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies. And Jewish tradition illustrates Sarah's work in bringing strangers closer to the experience of God by the hospitality that she offered in her tent. And it was a place, the Jews said, where God's blessings and eminence could be experienced. Miracles happened here. Good works are associated in Jewish writings with Sarah's tent. Things like what? All the days in which Sarah lived, the doors of the entrance to her tent were open to the wind, to the ruha of the Spirit of God blowing through, the breath of the Holy Spirit. They say that in all the days which Sarah lived, there was a blessing sent through her dough, which she baked. And all the days in which Sarah lived, there was always a light burning from one Shabbat evening to the next Shabbat evening, like almost a perpetual light. You'll remember she prepared those three loaves of dough for the Trinity. And I remember the story in Luke, in Luke 12, and, and it was the shortest two-sentence parable where Jesus said, what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid three measures of meal until it was leavened. I think Luke, the Holy Spirit there, is pointing to Sarah and her dough. All the days Sarah lived, there was a cloud attached to the entrance of her tent. And we know a cloud is always evidence of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, all these things, the Jews write, ceaselessly, abruptly ended 
the moment Sarah died. These three things about her tent all vanished. The three characteristics of Sarah's tent run parallel characteristics to the tabernacle in the desert, the holy of holies in the temple, like her shoe bread, her, her dough. The light prefigures the menorah in the holy of holies and the wind, the ruha of the Holy Spirit, the cloud that, that obscured the vision to the holy of holies. Just fun to think about. Paul goes on to the next matriarch now, and we're going, we're reviewing through these, and we just did Genesis last year, which is wonderful. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and they had nothing, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of God's call, Isaac was the oldest of the patriarchs at the time of his death. He lived the longest. He's the only one. His name never changed. Rabbinic literature also links Isaac's blindness in his old age, as stated in the Bible, to that sacrificial binding. When his father was going to sacrifice him, Isaac's eyes were blind, they say, because the tears of the angels present at the time of this sacrifice fell on Isaac's eyes. Isaac was the only patriarch who stayed in Cana his whole life. Though he tried to leave once, God told him not to, the rabbis write. Rabbinic tradition gave the explanation that Isaac was almost sacrificed, and anything dedicated as a sacrifice to the Lord may not leave the land of Israel. In rabbinic tradition, the age of Isaac at the time of binding is thought to be 36 or 37 years old, which contrasts a lot with a lot of the paintings who put Isaac as a child. They tried to find older looking Isaacs. The rabbis say he was at least 36 or 37 years old when this son of promise was bound by his father and made ready to sacrifice. And the rabbis thought that the reason for the death of Sarah was the news of the intended sacrifice of her promised son Isaac. And the sacrifice of Isaac is cited in appeals for the mercy of God in later Jewish traditions. God's incredible mercy to stop the sacrifice. The Agadah is a non-legalistic exegesis, which appears in the classical rabbinical literature of Judaism, particularly the Talmud and the Midrash. And according to many accounts of Agadah, this text recited at the Seder on the first two nights of the Jewish Passover includes a narrative of the Exodus. And I found this extremely interesting. The Agadah says it is Satan who was testing Isaac as an agent of God. So if you have a 36 or 37-year-old man going with a 100-year-old man up a mountain, I mean, Isaac totally could have bolted. Agatha says it's Satan who's testing Isaac. Is he an agent of God? Is he the Messiah, perhaps, the promised one that Satan's been waiting for, the one who's predicted to smash Satan's head? On Passover night, the new Isaac, Jesus, the antitype, is also being tested by Satan to see if he is a true agent of God. I believe this in the Garden of Gethsemane, another garden where Satan is active. So we see it in Mel Gibson's Passion. He has a, does a beautiful job with this. The old Isaac's willingness to follow God's command at the cost of his own death. The new Isaac's willingness to follow God's command at the cost of his own death. The old Isaac is unbound just in the nick of time and set free. But by resisting the temptation to throw in the towel, the new Isaac, the new Isaac could have not gone through with it. He could have thrown in the towel. He could have not drank the cup. But he says, thy will be done, Father. Could a cup pass from me? 
but thy will be done. And Jesus will unbound the entire earthly family. He's cried a greater new Isaac. But we see the, the incredible similarities. Not my will, but your will be done, Father. His sweat, the new Isaac, became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. You imagine both Isaacs, one being bound, his father willing to, ready, ready to sacrifice him. And this Isaac, the tears of blood dropping onto the cursed ground of Adam. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And the angel came to stop Abraham and the angel came to minister to Jesus Christ, the new Isaac. And according to Jewish tradition, it was Isaac who instituted the afternoon twilight prayer at three o'clock, his time of sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Also, there was a big deal made in Genesis last year about Isaac getting a bride, and it had to be the right bride, the correct bride, the, gri- the bride called by God. Abraham was old. Sarah was dead. He's advanced in years. Isaac doesn't have a kid yet. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, it's Eleazar is his name, put your hand under my thigh and, and swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not take a wife for my son Isaac from the daughters of the Canaanites among where I dwell, but go to my country and my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the Lord will send an angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son. So the servant Eleazar put his hand under the thigh of his master Abraham. He swore concerning this matter. He took 10 of his master's camels and departed with all sorts of choice gifts from the master Abraham. He arose, Eleazar did, and went to Mesopotamia. He made the camels lay down outside the city well at the water at the time of the evening when the women go out to draw water. And he said, Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, grant me success today, I pray thee, and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming to draw water. Let the maiden of whom I shall say, pray, let down your jar that I might drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom thou hast appointed to thy servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown steadfast love to my master Abraham. Before he was done speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born in Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahar, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar upon her shoulder. And the maiden was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. And she went down to the spring. She filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, pray, give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly ran and let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when he had finished the drink, she said, I'll draw water for you camels also until they have been done drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw and she drew for all 10 of his camels. Now we know that 10 camels multiplied by 15 gallons of water each. She drew at least 150 gallons of water that day. And Eliezer gazed at her in silence. He's praying. He gazes at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Is this the one, Lord? And he presented her a gold ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her arm, weighing 10 golden shekels. And Eliezer bowed his head and worshiped the Lord God and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, Lord has led me into the house of my master's kinsman. They called Rebecca to see if she will go and be a wife for Isaac. Will you go with this man, Eliezer? And she said, 
I will go. She said yes without even knowing him, without even seeing Isaac. Very similar to the wedding, the, the marriage of God to Israel. All that the Lord has said we will do. They said it before they even knew God, marrying before knowing. Isaac went out to the field to meditate in the twilight. Remember Isaac, the founder of the afternoon prayer? Three o'clock in the afternoon, he's out in the fields praying. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes and she saw Isaac and she alighted from the camel. And she said to Eleazar, who, who is this man yonder walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took well, she took her veil and she covered herself. Now she's the bride and she's veiling herself. Remember when we studied Revelation, that's the unveiling of the bride. The veil is lifted. The servant told Isaac, all the things he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent, and that would have been Sarah's tent. He took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother Sarah's death. After Sarah died, Isaac missed his mother. Sarah's tent was passed on to Rebekah and Isaac. And remember Sarah's tent, the wind of the Holy Spirit, the dough that was always blessed and the perpetual light of the candle from Shabbat to Shabbat. Well, now the three miraculous phenomena had ceased at Sarah's death. But now when Rebecca moved in the tent, the rabbis write that the tent again began producing the three miraculous phenomena. The candles remained lit from Friday to the next. The dough was blessed as all, and it always sufficed enough for family and guests and offered hospitality to all to come and eat bread in this tent. And, and again, the divine cloud came and attached to the tent. So if we look at the typology, if Jesus is the new Isaac, then Rebecca is the new church, his bride. And it's interesting because Isaac, in a world of polygamy, Isaac took only one bride his entire life. The candle remained lit in the tent, just like the perpetual candle when Jesus is present in the church. The dough was blessed and always sufficed the family and guest. We never run out of Eucharist at Mass. And the divine cloud was attached to the tent, the incense that goes up, the Holy Spirit alive in the heart of the church, the blessing of the glory of God, his Holy Spirit among us. The new bride of the new Isaac is the universal church. Was he 36 or 37? The rabbis say, and eh, they're not sure, one or the other. Hmm. Isaac, we know, was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to be his wife. Isaac was 40 years old. At the time of the sacrifice, was he 36 or 37? He, he's 40 when he marries. It's three years away or four years away. Hmm. I think 36, because six is less than the perfect covenant of seven. That'll be, I don't know. I don't know. That's another lecture. Okay, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife now because she's barren. They're living in Sarah's tent where Sarah was barren, and now Rebecca is barren. Abraham had given everything he had to Isaac. After Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah, and Abraham sent Keturah away from her son Isaac east to the east country. Isaac prays to the Lord for his wife. She's barren. The Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. What the scripture doesn't tell us right there, it tells us later, it took 20 years to answer his prayer. So she was infertile for 20 years. 20 years 
years. The bride of Isaac is pregnant when Isaac becomes 60 years old. So the bride of the new Isaac Jesus is expectant with life, the church. The children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why do I live? She went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said, two nations are in your womb. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter nine, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.